tell us the story of Allen Ginsberg proposing to you, if you wouldn't mind. Well, it was about oh, a year after Ted died. I was working for Alan, actually. Maybe it was two years. What were you doing for Alan? Well, at that time, I was typing and filing. I tended to work for Alan every once in a while. Sometimes I later I subbed for him because we stayed friends uh, for until he died. But um, I was going over to his apartment a couple of times a week and, and uh, doing things for him. And I was grieving really hard. And I, I didn't know, I, I wasn't paying much attention to anything. anything but, but his secretary, Bob Rosenthal, said to me, Alan has a crush on you, and he's going to speak to you soon. Hey, poets and poetry lovers. Welcome to Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast sponsored by the Radio Drama Network. I'm your host, Tova Green, and today I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with a legend. I don't know how else to describe her. I'm speechless. She's truly one of America's greatest living poets. She's the artist who Rudy Burkhart said is our present-day Homer. So drumroll, please. Alice Notley! Oh my god! Uh, it's often identified as a prominent member of the eclectic second generation of the New York school. Having a cook with you. Thanks, Frank. Woo! Uh, she's written more iconic works of poetry than fingers and toes I have, including The Descent of Alette, In the Pines, and Disobedience. Notley has received the Los Angeles Times Book Award for Poetry and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In 2001, she received both an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the Poetry Society of America's Shelley Memorial Award. In 2015, she was honored with the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, and she currently lives in Paris. Alice and I chatted at around 12 my time, which was 6 her time, and she is, she's incredibly well-spoken and generous, and I mean, she's Alice Notley, she's prolific. It was an out-of-body experience to talk to her, and I cannot wait for y'all to hear everything she has to say. Every poet has their own poetry origin story, their own tale of their descent into this wonderful world we call poetry. And Alice Notley was undoubtedly a part of my poetry origin story, so today I asked Alice about her poetry origin story, and this is what she had to say. Take a listen. I never felt, I, it never occurred to me that it was possible. My parents respected it, though. They had not gone to college or anything. It was just that they knew they knew that there were poets and that it was important. But my parents grew up during the Depression, and, and uh, both of their families were very poor, my father's in particular, and sometimes they were homeless. But they never pushed against my becoming a poet at all. You know, they knew that it was a, it, it was a really wonderful cultural thing to be. And a lot of people don't know that now. I mean, a lot of people that should know better don't know it. But my parents always knew it. I had learned poems from my mother when I was a child. And I kind of took it for granted as an important art, but it never occurred to me I could be one. And at a certain point, it occurred to me I was probably some sort of writer or maker or something. People around me when I was in high school told me that I was a musician, but I knew I wasn't a musician. I knew I wasn't any good. And whenever I did something that I really liked that had to do with writing, they would tell me it wasn't any good and that I was really a musician. And then I went away to college. I went, to, I went from the Mojave Desert to Barnard College, and um, this great 
pressure built in me to make something rather than be in criticism classes. I was taking English literature classes, but I didn't want to be the person that talked about other people's works. I realized I wanted to be the one who made the words of whatever sort it was. And I was still taking music classes and trying to figure out what it meant to compose music. And then I started taking creative writing classes and they only offered uh, fiction classes and, and prose classes. So I took fiction classes and I wrote these stories and they were actually pretty good. And I got into, and I was graduating and then I, I didn't know how to become a writer. And I found out about going to Iowa and then they let me in. I sent them this story and they let me in. And so I went to Iowa as a story writer in the fiction workshop. And um, I immediately met poets when I got to Iowa. And I got interested in how you could have like one page and move everything, all the words around on it until you got something. It was like you were making something with you. Um, by moving parts around and by crossing out words, the process of writing stories had been a little bit different for me and very painful. I started writing poems and I started thinking about poetry and reading their poetry books, which, uh, which were not the books I stayed with. And then I left Iowa because I thought I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be there and that I had to do something else. But then I came back. And when I came back, Ted Berrigan was there. And I connected with him and I, became, I started writing all these poems. I had been turned on by a reading by Bob Creeley when I was first at Iowa. And I wrote a poem sort of after hearing him read, not understanding anything he was saying, but being completely electrified by it and understanding the form of it somehow without knowing what I was hearing. I was fairly open. I had tried writing like some of the poets that were popular, but uh, it wasn't working very well. And I went away and came back, met Ted, read all of his books and wrote about 80 poems. Then he said to me, so, I mean, like, what do you want to be? Do you want to be uh, a poet or a story writer? And I said, I want to be a poet. So then I was a poet. And then I got my degree in fiction and poetry. And I have, to this day, been someone who writes fiction and poetry, but in the same my poems are like fiction and poetry. I use my narrative skills uh, in my poems. I use my ability to, uh, to include a lot of people in my poems, to include conversation and to create a community in the poem, the way you do in a novel or a story. Something that the Radio Drama Network and the Poetry Society of New York are super passionate about is the importance of reading poetry out loud. I mean, Poetry is, at its core, an oral formulaic tradition to question and celebrate all of the triumphs and tribulations of being human. So, next, I had to bring up Alice's incredible book, Coming After, Essays on Poetry, as in it she writes that when you read poetry out loud, there's a language of transference from the author's own physical being. And she additionally claims that poets best read their poetry out loud versus anyone else. I asked her about this claim and what her first time realizing it was. So take a listen. I was living in New York and Ted and I had been together, but we had broken up. But um, he arranged a poetry reading for me at Yale with Tom Veach. And I read in this chapel for a very small audience, which included most of the, a lot of, a lot of the future language poets. And I, I, I had no idea how to give a, a poetry reading. So I practiced, uh, I practiced for weeks. 
And I realized what it was, was something like theater. And, um, and, it, and it was projection. I just knew this. And I probably knew it from my upbringing somehow. Um, but I, I, I gave this really great reading. Then I read a lot of these love poems I'd written to Ted, of which were really pissed off love poems, but also, also, also like real love poems. And because we had broken up. And afterwards, he told me it, uh, that uh, he told me it was like hearing Frank for the first time. <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe it. And he denied he, he denied he said that later. But he did say it. He told me he told me that he saw it. You know, he saw it because I was I was there. I was on. I was in the space and I gave the reading and I gave it perfectly from myself in my voice. But I was also. There, there's a gap between who you are as a person and who you are as a writer and who you are as a performer. And, and I realized that I realized that space and the importance of it. I still practice in my room. I read my poems aloud to find out if they're any good. Anytime I write one, I, re I read it. It's the first thing I do after I've written it. I read it and make sure it reads. And I used to sit and I still do, but I used to do it every day. I would sit for a while and read the poems that I had in my folder and, and go through them and I'd feel how they felt in my body and find the places that didn't work. And I used to pretend I was giving a reading at the Poetry Project whenever I read aloud. I, I could always see this certain audience. There was a perfect audience in the 70s and 80s there. And it's still a pretty good audience. You wanted to present your poetry there because you knew you would be heard. You could feel the hearing, the listening while you were reading. And Edwin Denby said he'd like to go to those readings simply to be in the, such an intelligent audience, such a listening, really with it audience. So next, I could not wait any longer. I had to hear some of Alice's poetry straight from her mouth. I'm sure you're all on the same page as I was. So take a listen. I hope you're excited. This book is called Early Works. And the first poem in it is like the first poem in my thesis that I wrote for, for, for Iowa. And then there are some love poems and a lot of uncollected poems. And then my first four books. I know there's a really nice poem here that I wouldn't be embarrassed by if I can find it. Oh, no, but these are great. These are poems that are imitations of, there's one that's an imitation of John Wiener's and one that's an imitation of Allen Ginsberg that I wrote when I was like 24. Do you want to hear them? See, I didn't have enough yes, credits please. to graduate from, to get my, my MFA. And so George Starbuck told me that I would graduate. I had lost track of the credits, but th there was this list of poets that you had to turn in to be used for the final exam. And he told me if I wrote a, an imitation of all the poets on the list, he would give me the credits and, and graduate me. This one is an imitation of John Wiener's called Poem for Here. Peace to you and good breathing, talking for living on this Friday night. The world is women open like you. Remove this desire, a poem, from the man I love. We can take delight in my savagery. Well, I don't know if I want your wants ever filled by others, and will say that I do, 
or the poem, for they are. The light makes my hair warm. Here is tea and three more days. May you always not know the numbers. And this one, this one is a conversation with Allen Ginsberg's poem, This Form of Life Needs Sex. I had just met Alan when I wrote this. I don't know if you know the poem, but he's he's sort of saying that he has to come to terms with the existence of women. It was at a time, I think, think he, when he actually wanted to have a child. And he was trying not to be queer, but he didn't really succeed. Although he did want to, once ask me to marry him. But this is called Allen Ginsberg. I'm a woman creature. <laughs> I'm a woman creature. I'm, I'm a woman creature, so far babyless, by choice alone, by choice, sometimes and sometimes lost in pretending, remembering, and fighting these two. I will have to accept women, some woman concept. I want to live with someone, some woman concept, more than love me. I must provide to be provided for, taxi filling water. I can't change substance, the cliche not equal but different. It's a cliche of only a person. I've accepted and rejected both, like most women. This woman futurity, I am pledged to born not to die. Not only afterlife, but now in city, fear or Midwest, ride no cityscape. I'm serious. Dry up in words and no words of being with no one and sleep alone with childhood dreams. I can't much longer than past my bloom into dignity. Feel sorry, feel sorry. Ah! I will provide for, provide for you and me here in the heart of futurity. Snaps. Yes, that's amazing. I didn't say the last word right. Here's a real poem by me from that time. Away from you becoming me. Today I'm returned from you and heaped with snow shawls. We no longer have villas or you do hitching through their lovely intimates. In one day, I'm too thin to be loved, trying not to sleep in my head. And endless preparations for the no salutations. And the sky is peeled away, crumbled in my pocket, maybe revealing some more garish gray. When we fight, are you shaken irrevocably as I am not away from love? This is the hymn to make me whole. Hello, see me gaining weight, the moon helps slips down my throat. Have I no good heart again? And I have no money. Out of curiosity, what made that a real poem versus the first you shared? Uh, the, both of those poems owe, owe their structure to the poets I'm imitating, actually, and the tone of voice as well. That's why you do imitations. You learn things about structure and tone of voice. Interacting with the John Wiener's poem was just really lovely. It, it was a very, ni very nice experience, but I'm talking to his poem. I can't remember what he says. He says something like, peace to you, Dana, my lover. It's, it's just really pretty. Where, and Alan's poem is about three or four pages long, and it really grossed out Adrian Rich. Did it really? Well, there was a poem where she said she just didn't like the way Alan talked about vaginas. Sounds like Adrian Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I didn't mind, actually, the way he talked about vaginas at all. <laughs> Okay, 
Next, I'm about to show you perhaps my favorite clip of any interview of this season. I can't say anything about it. You just have to hear it for yourself. So take a listen, and I really hope that we can bond over how amazing this is. Tell us the story of Allen Ginsberg proposing to you, if you wouldn't mind. Well, it was about a year after Ted died. I was working for Allen, actually. Maybe it's two years. What were you doing for Allen? Well, at that time, I was typing and filing. I tended to work for Alan every once in a while. Sometimes I later I subbed for him because we stayed friends uh, for until he died. But um, I was going over to his apartment a couple of times a week and and uh, doing things for him. And I was grieving really hard, and I I didn't know I, I wasn't paying much attention to anything anything. But but his secretary Bob Rosenthal said to me. Alan has a crush on you, and he's going to speak to you soon. And I thought, oh, and I thought, oh, he's probably going to ask me out. I said, or maybe he will ask me to go to bed. And then, like a week or two later, he asked me to come into the other room. I was because I was in some room where I was working, and I said, oh, oh, you know. And I came, I went into this room, and he said, I have something to ask you. And then he said, Will you marry me? And then he looked. Like, he realized he had said something he probably shouldn't have said. Then he said, you have to marry either me or Philip Whalen. And then he said, why do you like fat men? <laughs> and I said, I can't marry either of you. You're too old for me. And I don't care about whether a man is fat or not. I, I fall in love with their minds. And he said, oh. And then... I forgot about it. <laughs> I totally, I forgot about it for years, actually. But I think we became closer after that. And, and we were always, when I saw him, I felt close to him. He was a really good person. And he was a really good friend for all of his friends. He was a wonderful person. I mean, he had some of the weirdest friends in the world. And he, they all needed, he was the only person that had, had some money in a, I mean, we were all just, uh, we were all waifs. And he, he had money. He, he managed to get money because his, his poetry sold. And then he was always taking care of people like Herbert Hunky and Gregory Corso and, oh, uh, Ray Brimser. God, these terrible people who had been in jail for armed robbery and stuff like that. He, you know, they were all part of his friends and he gave them money and, he was always giving money to Hunky and Harry Smith. Harry Smith came to live with him towards the end of his life, and he sent Harry Smith off to Naropa to be the shaman in residence. Uh, and mm -hmm. and he 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 had ways of uh, he could hire people, and he would hire them to do do these kinds of tasks for him. But he couldn't give them um, medical insurance and he didn't have it himself and when he took the job at brooklyn college finally it was to get the insurance because he, he knew he was wow. sick he had a, he had a billion kinds of hepatitis he lived in a lot of different places in the east village but when i knew him he was living at uh 437 east 12th street where i had lived for a while but then more and more poets came and lived there and he lived there for a long time and then when he sold all of his papers to Stanford. He bought a loft on, I think it was 14th Street. 
I was never there because it was it was after I left New York. But he, he lived in on these terrible streets in Alphabet City, uh, different apartments. We lived at um, 101 St. Mark's Place, and it was between First and A, and Ted felt very depressed about it because we, we had gone a half block past First Avenue. I was young. I was younger than all of them. And now I'm 77 and they're dead. Anyone who knows even a little bit about Alice Notley would consider her a feminist icon. In another essay from Coming After, which is called The Feminine Epic, Notley specifically considers what might be another kind of poetry, whole other poetry spring from nowhere as at the beginning of the world in the hands of women, or perhaps even more desirably as at the beginning of the world invented equally by women and men together not as now, already made out of men. Do you follow me? I am saying there may be nothing of women in the way any poem looks now and what its form is. The entire soil, all layers and most nutrients are all for practical purposes male. What would it be like to make a female poetry? Is that possible? And when I read that, I was super interested as in my academic life, I really love to analyze creative work through the lens of either social protest or cultural critique or both. So next, Alice and I talked about whether her poetry is political work. It's really interesting, so take a listen. Thank you so much for joining us. This is such, I don't know, an important moment for me because, I mean, talk about poetry origin stories. You are one of my poetry origin stories. And I just graduated Sarah Lawrence College and I wrote a thesis on the American feminist poetry movement from 1963 to 1989. And you were in it. And that was wild to me. Um, and so it's really incredible to speak to you and see your face. <laughs> and so just thank you so much for that. I mean, your poem, The Goddess Who Created This Passing World, is one of my favorite poems of all time. So thank you so much for being here. Quite obviously, your work is politicized quite a bit just kind of because of the person you are and the space that you took up within second wave feminism and third wave feminism. I'm wondering, do you see your work as political work or do you see your work as politicized? That key difference. Um, I don't see it either way, actually. It depends on what's going on. I don't think of it being political, but there are things I have to do in order to occupy the space I should occupy. There are problems I faced being a poet consistently and so every once in a while, I have to, I have to b break through a wall in order to be myself. And that's how I approach it. The most political poem I've ever written probably is The Descent of Alette. It's a public poem. I wrote it for my brother. I wrote it because he had died this horrible way after being used in the Vietnam War. And I had to write it. And I wrote it for him. And I wrote it so so I could make a public statement for him. Oh, wow. I mean, thank you so much for telling that. I mean, it is right in my hands right here. It is very much <laughs> read and loved and treasured and valued. Once I do what something is... like write some, write a political statement in a way, then it gets incorporated into everything else I do so that everything I am can come out at the same time. For example, I wrote a poem about global warming in 1993 called Desamer. And it's in a, it's in a two poem volume that's never, that's only been published by O Books, that is by a, a small press. And most people don't know about this poem, but I wrote it in 1993. 
I, right after I moved to, to France, I, I saw that this was happening. I read a lot of books and I did some research and I wrote this poem. And, and I wrote a little, there's a little preface to the book uh, saying that this is, this is the case. And then I incorporated my knowledge of that into all of my subsequent poetry. And I doubt that there are any books afterwards that don't mention something about what's going on in relation to the environment and the planet, but it's part of everything. I don't uh, make it be a one thing thing. Do you follow? I do follow. The essay by Notley that has perhaps impacted me the most in my personal life is The Poetics of Disobedience, which was written in 1998. In this essay, she discusses her approach in composing such collections as The Descent of Alette, which she describes as, quote, an immense act of rebellion against dominant social forces, against the fragmented forms of modern poetry, against the way a poem was supposed to look according to both past and contemporary practice. The thesis of this essay can be found within this assertion, quote, it's necessary to maintain a state of disobedience against everything. One must remain somehow, though how, open to any subject or form and principle, open to the possibility of liking, open to the possibility of using. I asked Alice about her interest in disobedience, and this is what she had to say. My interest in disobedience is how you disobey your friends. You disobey the, the people that are closest to you. You disobey, you disobey groups. And the first group you have to, has to have to disobey usually is the one you're in, but you can still be in it. But you can't, you can't believe what your friends tell you to do. If there's something like aesthetic pressure or political pressure on you, you have to resist it, no matter what kind it is, because you have to have a clear mind or you won't be any good either as a poet or a political person. People, human beings run in packs. You don't want to run in a pack. It's mammalian, but I, not all mammals do it. I don't think orangutans do it. I've been thinking about orangutans. I, I think I, I would counsel people to try to be alone as much as they can. It would help the way the world is right now. Out of all of the poets you've read or met, I feel like so many of these poets have been hypostatized, but which poets have you found to be the most disobedient? Like, who have you learned poetic disobedience from? Oh, I learned that from myself. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I learned that from myself. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and I had no, I, I had to have all my conversations with myself finally. And I realized that I could only know anything if I was very, very strict with what I knew. I, you know, I had to keep questioning myself about whether or not I, was telling the truth or knowing the truth or whether I was any good. And, and I taught it to myself. How did you do that? <laughs> I, I kind of have a feeling when I am, you know, and when I have a feeling when I'm doing the right thing and when I'm on the wrong, right track. I, I get, I've lived alone now for 20 years. And so I'm sort of back in the same place where I was when I was growing up in the Mojave Desert. I don't have anyone to depend on. I didn't have anyone to, I could depend on people for love there and for being interesting i mean there were some really weird people there and very interesting but um i couldn't depend on them for knowing anything that i needed to know in order to be an artist 
I had to figure it out for myself. And and I, I disciplined myself while I was there. Every once in a while, I would be seduced away into like a group of people. And then, then they would try to make me be like them. I would have to finally sort of say, no, no, I can't be like that. Alrighty, my lovely listeners, are you ready for Alice to share some more of her poetry? Because I sure as heck am. <laughs> Take a listen. I opened this book up today uh, from the, the Speak Angel series, and I just I decided I would read whatever page I opened up to. The Speak Angel series is, this book is going to be 635 pages long. Okay, and it's divided into six books. And it, uh, each of the books are different from each other. And in book two, I don't know how to explain any of that. This is a page from book two, which is different from all of the others, because there are these places where I'm accentuating what usually isn't accentuated. And so those places are in all caps. And it hurts my throat to read it. He was on dope, you understand? So what was I supposed? You'll lose him if he disappears. Disappears alone, a little play. I think we have to go back for him. I woke up. The police are looking for you. You went back to sleep. When you're dead, you're not on anything. I've entered the old city. Let's speak new. We always, do you have enemies? It's loose, off track. What about syntax, inflection? It's vertical. I don't have any enemies. Must be losing my touch. No touch. In death, no, the man says you have plenty of enemies, for you, our leader, are an enemy of all states. It is an act of treason. The new universe is an act of treason. I haven't met you yet. When is this? Before the dawn of cliché time owned you, I live in the drift wind, shadow box, self-deployed depth. I live in the depth. She scribbled silver on paper. The leader is the walkabout shade. I am asserting my own state and yours for a long time. You are a leader, were a spy. Every word a spy hole goes both ways. Life, death, life, death, until you tergiversate, turn, renegade. He was on dope or I was on dope. You understand? Why shouldn't I be? I was, in fact, trying to live. I am leading you to the loose tongue acting in the play where we first came apart and together I am leading you. You are leading because no one's leading you. Wow. Thank you. The first book is in long lines and mostly. Well, it, it's actually, it's, it's in all different kinds of things, but there's a person who, who is I, who is leading every entity in the universe to a new beginning. And so they go to a point zero. And then this book is at the point zero. And it's kind of a celebration of being at the point zero. And what I started hearing was stresses that weren't the normal stresses. And so I started putting them in caps. And then when I read it aloud, it made me chant to do that, to, to read it aloud with, with the caps. And I hadn't anticipated that. And I discovered it after... X number of pages, and then I, I kept it up, but, but I realized I was making something that was ultimately going to be musical. So that section is called opera, and it's like an opera. It's just these lines, and but it sometimes there aren't so many caps, 
some of the pages are, are longer than other pages. And then in the next book, it's all different again. <laughs> and each book has a different way of approaching sound and structure. Although there's this kind of journey going on through all of the books. I had a um, fundamentalist Protestant upbringing. It kind of never leaves you, but uh, see, I just turned to a page that says Alice's soul at the top. I don't know what this says. I entered where I was sent wearing small earrings. Don't know if these are the right words from your mind. Syntax gold, but there was a glyph, the universe. I'm reading its mind. But I'm reading yours, reading mine, whenever we are somewhat enmeshed. I entered where I was sent to spy for the system I had come from. I had no form before I was madly born, but I was there then who I am, the one you to make, make others listen. I know I suffered with you. There are red stripes across my unhappy face as you describe your calvaries. And then from us as if afar, I say, or am I she to become you, or am I you? So serene again, I remember being this soul, the spy and savior you are. It hurt you, too, to be neglected because you know too much. So skilled, do skills have merit or does suffering? Do you now deserve to be me, your soul? I don't know if this is time, but you have never been a piece of meat. Resplendent from ashes grown tall, we are ready to name ourselves. That's my answer. Next, Alice and I talked about anonymity, the concept of home, and so much more. Take a listen. What was it like going from Needles to New York? I can't think of two more different places in the world. What was that culture shock? It was really interesting because, um, because I got to find out what it was like to be anonymous. And I found that really wonderful. I had never been anonymous before. Everybody knew each other in Needles. And I was suddenly in this city where the, the name of everything was an anonymity. And that was another way where I could resist, even though I was among all of these people, I could resist by being anonymous. <laughs> How do you find anonymity now? Because you are not anonymous. I'm anonymous in my daily life in Paris. I'm totally anonymous. Nobody cares about me here. <laughs> Is that why you moved to Paris? No, I moved to Paris because I was married to a man who had come, I was married to the, the British poet, Doug Oliver, a really beautiful poet. And um, he had come to New York to live with me and my sons while, uh, because they were still in high school and his daughters were in college. And he came to New York and lived with me. And then he wasn't properly accepted by uh, the American poetry world. It was in the 90s and all, and all anyone did was talk about, about the evils of Eurocentrism. And since he was a European, he was obviously Eurocentric. Why, why wouldn't he be? <laughs> he had the most beautiful accent. He, did, he, his accent, his British accent, and his voice. I fell in love with his voice. And uh, anyway, he had worked in Paris be before uh, moving to New York, and he lived in New York with me for about five years. And then he got offered the same job again. And it was my turn to follow him. So I followed him. And then after eight years, he died. So I have had two husbands who, uh, who have died. I stayed on because the, um, the medical system is really good here. And I've been sick several times. 
What's it like writing in a place with such a rich literary history, with a history of salons and Gertrude Stein coming? Like, what's it? What's it like to be? Are you entrenched? Oh, I don't. I never think about that at all. Really, but I do. I do think about uh, the history of the city sometimes, and I, I think about what it's like to live in a two thousand year old city. Uh, I sometimes hear the uh, and feel these voices like coming up out of the out of the floor, basically. I, I live in this building. This is really, it's kind of a ratty building. And I have a two-room apartment. I've never had anything. But the, the building goes back to the revolution. And it, I keep finding out things about, about places where I go in the city and how old they are and where the where there are parts of the old wall. There, there's the old wall and then the, the wall got you know, further out and further out. I have a poem that hasn't been published yet that I wrote, oh, about 12, 13 years ago that tells a story about a woman who meets with a group of dead people on a, a hidden little street near where I live that I discovered recently and talks to these dead people and then they speak through her mouth and they come from all different periods of time. Well, although it's unclear where in history they're from, but they're they're all presumably French or uh migratory. There's a man who, who's migrated up from Africa who, who then died of bronchitis. And there's a girl who was raped and murdered in about the 13th century. And there's a fortune teller from who knows what time. And there's a, a crook, a gangster. And there's a, a monk who became a pickpocket. And there are all these people. And then and they, they're, they're like her apostles. And they sit around and discuss everything. This is a quite large question. I'm just thinking about all the places you've lived. I mean, New York, the Bay Area, Chicago, Paris. What's your relationship to home? Like, is Paris your home? Is New York your home? Is there a different poetic home that you might have? Well, it's a good question. I don't know what my home is. My home, uh, partly my home is this apartment in the air that I make with my sons. And we recognize it whenever we go into each other's apartments because we have this art collection on our walls that started out as an art collection in the apartment on St. Mark's Place. And then when I left, I gave I gave them works. And then I brought some here and then they further added to it. And there's, so there's a spirit in each of our apartments that has to do with all of our friends who are poets. And uh, we sort of recognize who we are and what our community is by being in these among these these works and a, a lot of my friends from New York have the same work, kinds of works on their walls we have works by George Schneeman and and Joe Brainerd and Rudy Burkhart I have a, my Gustin cover in front of me when I look up then I have all the different periods of George Schneeman's work and I have works by my nephew uh, William Kulik and so forth and uh, I have a and Alex Katz, uh, a little a little study. And I have works by me because I'm an artist too. And so this is, my home is like in my mind with my sons. Oh, your sons are incredible poets as well. I mean, it makes complete sense. Did you, how did you raise your sons on poetry? I didn't did try. You do what your mother did? Really? No, but I mean, we didn't have any money. And but we had community and people came over to our apartment every single day. My sons grew up in this, in this community of largely adults, but there got to be some children. But all they knew was the sounds of the sound of poets talking about poetry. And I, I think it just soaked in. 
so you know it's a family profession and their stepfather was a poet too so i mean it's it's like what they knew Next, you'll listen to Alice proving that even though you could take Alice Notley out of New York, you can't take the New York out of Alice Notley. Take a listen. I live in a, a very small apartment, it's, and it's occasionally very noisy. It's, it's hard to explain. It's set up in this, this very strange way so you can hear everything in the building, and there's, a, there's an Airbnb in this little courtyard that's just horrifying. Before it was an Airbnb, there was a woman from hell living there who had parties all the time for about two years. I used to throw water in a bucket through the through the window, down through this hole in the, her ceiling because it was a trick I learned in New York. Charlie McGrath taught me this at 101 St. Mark's. He says, this is what you do. There were these two women making out on our, on our, on our steps one day and nobody could get in or out of the building and they, and they were drunk and they wouldn't go away. So finally, Charlie came down with a bucket of water and poured it on them. And they went away and he said, this is what you do. This is what you do in New York. Everybody knows it. And I remembered that. So whenever she was, she was getting really grossly loud, I would, I would pour a bucket of water. And my, my windows have these bars on them that I can't do anything about. But I learned how to pour the water through the bars and aim it for this little window on her roof and make the water go down and and destroy her destroy her sanity and it made me feel so good and then i knew i was still a new yorker <laughs> as we approach the end of our conversation i asked alice about poetry communities does she feel connected to a poetry community now how did a poetry community affect her as a younger writer and what's the future of poetry communities Take a listen to what she had to say. It's hard to say because the economics of everything have changed so much. And I have managed never to make very much money. Uh, I've been very lucky, but I, I feel as if I am guided by a divine hand somehow. Because I also keep getting my life saved at uh, various moments when, <laughs> when I might almost die. <laughs> I never thought about money. And it was important to have a supportive community, but sometimes they weren't that supportive because poets are like that. And sometimes you have these terrible aesthetic wars and sometimes everybody sleeps with everybody's uh, friends and, and then they have these intense inter, internecine sexual wars. And I, I mean, it can be very, very incestuous, and you, you probably know all about this at, at this point. But, um, but on the other hand, you have each other. Even, even if you're mad at each other, you still have each other. And the, the connection, a lot of the connection was economic, but so much of it was just having people to, to read poems to. And I don't know how, there's still some of it in New York, but the, everybody has to work now. Everybody, it's... It costs so much to have an apartment. And it's like that all over the United States. It's like that in Paris. Everybody I know works. I just work at my poetry, and I'm officially retired as a working person here and wherever, and I'm on Social Security in two countries. But I, I've never worked, and I'll never... On the other hand, I've always worked, and I'll never stop working. What about the poetry world right now excites you and what advice do you have for the poets of today to create a poetry community or maintain a poetry community? 
I don't know what excites me. I'm trying to, I, I'm not sure, except to, I felt very good when I went to Butler. I sat on, in on these two classes, and I liked, I liked the people in the classes. And I, I just, uh, I felt that they had good spirits, but that they were traumatized by COVID and the place that COVID had put them in. And they didn't talk about it. It was just something I felt. But something, something good could come of this. So it's a place that people will come away from different. I don't know what else I know. I, I, I love my son's poetry. Amazing. I, I, and I'm always aware of what they're doing and of what their friends are doing, but they're old now. I mean, Anselm is 50. Eddie is 48. <laughs> to finish off our conversation, I asked Alice for any advice for upcoming poets who are listening to this podcast. I mean, firstly, how does she do it? How does she write so much? And what advice does she have for poets to continue writing, to get their work out there, to get into a community? take a listen. Yeah, I made myself available. I wasn't always available. It, it, it was really, it was sometimes really hard to write uh, the right thing, although I always did write, but I wrote a lot of terrible stuff as well as good stuff. And it took me, I don't know, it took me about 10 years to be anywhere near good. And then it took another 10 years to know I was going to continue to do it. I wrote these poems and I knew they were good, <laughs> that they were really good. I had written some poems, you know, when, when I was younger, I wrote these poems and they were pretty good. And then there was this one point where I suffered really a lot. And I woke up this one morning and I had this whole poem in my head and it was about five pages long. It was called, it's called Your Dailiness and it's in all my books now. I wrote it when I was 27, I think. And it was just sitting there and I knew that I had, Anselm was a, was a, a toddler. I, I had, didn't have Eddie yet. I was in England. But I, I knew that I could do all the things I had to do during the day and just every once in a while go into the room where my notebook was and write some more of it down. And it was all there, every word of it. I got every word of it at one time. Uh, that was an amazing experience. And then after I went to New York, I realized I could write long poems. And once I realized that, that and had done it once or twice, then I wrote some that were like none anybody had written before because it hadn't been done, partly because it hadn't been done by a woman, but it hadn't been done by me. And then I had these poems. And I knew that the prophet was really good. And I, I knew that this, this poem called September's Book was really good. But then sometimes I couldn't get it. You know, sometimes it would go away and it would come back. The trick is to just keep doing it. And then one day, one day it's there. One day the voice is there. But you have to check in with your notebook or your typewriter like every, every day or several times a week at least. This has been an episode of Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast. Thank you so much to the legendary Alice Notley for having a Coke with me today. Alice, I hope I made Frank O'Hara proud. Crossed fingers. <laughs> Thank you to the Radio Drama Network for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our editor, Debs Bard, and the staff of PSNY for your incredible support. And most importantly, thank you to you all for listening. I wonder who we'll talk to next. So tune in every Friday to find out. 